This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Welcome, everyone. We are going to have a very practical and useful episode, especially for early career researchers, as we are going to talk about common problems with PhD and writing scientific papers, and more importantly, how to overcome them. And we have a special guest for this episode. He has PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology from Monash University, Australia. And he has been working as a speaker, career coach in his own company. He's helping academics with podcasts, blogs, workshops, and courses. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome our guest, Dr. Richard Huismans. Welcome, Richard. Thanks, Ali. You can just call me Richard. Uh, great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Um, yeah, problems with papers, problems with writing grants. I don't know how many uh, listeners have written and asked for help with that. Um, what sort of um, uh, questions you get around those topics on the on the blog and in response to the podcast? Yeah. So, so if we start with your introduction, could you tell who you are and how did you end up in this this situation where you are now? Yeah. How did I end up in this situation? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I started out as a PhD student at, at Monash, like you said, in Australia. Uh, for me, a PhD was the easiest next thing to do. Um, I think a lot of people think PhDs are difficult, but it was easier to continue on a studying than it was to look for a job. Um, for those of you that have looked for a job, you've probably realized how hard that is relative to just saying yes. And in Australia, PhD students at the time that I did my PhD, were all scholarship funded. So that wasn't a cost to me. Uh, I was on a stipend and a relatively good stipend compared to the cost of living. Did a PhD in biochemistry and molecular biology, um, looking at cell signaling. Decided that wasn't really what I wanted to do as a, when I was a grown up, when I grew up. So I told my supervisor that I wanted to leave academia um, that was an interesting discussion. Um, I think for most of you that have done a PhD or are supervising students, you'd know that you've got grand plans for the majority of students that you accept into your program. And my supervisor had grand plans for me as well. Uh, and by saying I wanted to leave, I think I destroyed those plans or the idea of those plans. Um, but um, my supervisor was really good, said, I'll help you do whatever it is that you want to do next. So most supervisors, or in Australia anyway, they've got lots of students. So um, there was a big long list of students that had been through the group previously that I could go and contact and ask them how they got to where they got to, uh, which was really useful. And then I applied for a few different roles, ended up getting a job at also at Monash University, and I find that's the easiest transition to make going, you know, if you don't want to be an academic, 
um, if you want to leave academia, making the transition from an academic role at a university to a professional one, that's the distinction that we make in Australia. Academics tend to do research and teaching, professional staff tend to do the admin. Um, that's the easiest transition to make, become a professional staff member at a uni. I did that and then I um, basically was consulting internally to the university. So. Um, we were doing, providing advice to academics about how they should run their groups or how academics could make bigger research programs or how teachers could launch new training packages. Um, and we did that for, as, I was part of a group of four people that did that for about four years. And then I thought, oh, why do I do it only just for one university? I should do it for every university. And I decided that being self-employed was what I wanted to do. So I set up my own business in 2008. So I don't know if many of your listeners are old enough to know that that's, that was the global financial crisis that year or around that time. So I started a business in the global financial crisis um, and it did really well. And it's basically funded my lifestyle ever since. And then I decided that around COVID time that I would transition from being more of a, a consultant into more of a career coach. Uh, and so I've done that. <laughs> Basically, just before COVID hit, I transitioned from helping write grants and being a gun for hire, perhaps you could call it, to now being more of a career coach. Um, and yeah, I'm helping people write their grants, write papers, write their thesis, um, I'm really into social media. I think it's a really good opportunity to connect with people. So I've helped researchers do that. Um, I've had my own resilience challenges and mental health setbacks. So I try and share those setbacks and how I learned to deal with those things as well so that I can help other people. Mm. So quite, quite an interesting story. And I think there's quite many researchers or who have done phd and then want to do something else but don't really know where to go what what advice you have for people who have done a phd but are are maybe looking that the research is not their thing how how to how to move to a new new position away from academia there's like anything there's lots of different ways the way i did it and the way that i coach other people is to try and make a list of all the things that you like doing. Um, so that might be research, but it could be gardening, it could be uh, cooking, etc. And then you could make another list. So that's the list of things that you like. You could make another list of all the things that you would uh, happily do for money. So those two lists might have some common items, but some different ones as well. And then then the final list is the list of things that people would pay you to do. So you might happily cook for money, but not many people would necessarily pay you to be a chef. So that might be taken off the list. Uh, but you might like, for example, lots of people in research think, in scientific research, think oh, I might do science communication. So that might be something that other people could pay you to do. And then have a look around the 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 marketplace, look around on social media. Like I said, I like social media a lot. Search social media for those keywords, those things that you like, that you would happily do for money and that people would pay you for money. And that's a, a useful starting place. 
I'll often use the analogy of riding a bike as well. So, you know, it's really easy to watch someone ride a bike. It's really easy to read about riding a bike, but the only way to really learn to ride a bike is to get on a bike. And that's the same with careers. You can read about what it's like to, you know, like you run a podcast, um, develop and use fitness tracking devices. But the only way to actually learn how to do it is to go and, deliver your own podcast and you'll learn about all the tools required very quickly, I'm sure, or to deliver your own fitness um, tracking system and you'll very quickly learn what the difficult things are and what the easy things are. So you've got to test out careers. Um, And the final thing that I would say about that is I wasn't worried about making the wrong choice. And I think as academics, sometimes we can think, oh, I'm good where I am. But that's no, in my mind, that's no decision. And like I talked about, that was how I basically ended up in my PhD. It was easier to not make a decision about a career and easier to continue studying. Nonetheless, that was still a choice, still a decision. Things happened. And so continuing on is still a decision. Putting off making the decision is still making a decision. It's a decision to do nothing. So being mindful that not making a decision is still making a decision. Mm, yeah, I, I fully agree. And I, I think it's a good point from you that you need to test it. And and I don't know if people know how, how easy it's nowadays to test that. For example, podcast, you can start with your smartphone. You don't need to pay anything for hosting. Basically, you just click record and put it out. And that's that's it. If nobody listens, no problem. If some people like it, that's good. You can keep going on. And I think same goes with, for example, YouTube, that you can just have your smartphone, you can start testing it and put it out and you get feedback from people. And I think there's, for example, one really interesting example. I think he's an old British guy and he started when the COVID started, he's printing a paper with the statistics of COVID. And then he has a camera pointing the paper and he's scribbling notes over the COVID numbers. And then he's talking at the same time. And I think he has like a couple of hundred thousand followers. And basically he's making a video every day about the COVID numbers in UK. And so, yeah, and he's he's not very, yeah, it's it's quite simple how he, he's doing it. But he's providing the daily information and people want that. And he has, he has background, he understands the numbers. So I think many academics could look for new opportunities with the new technology there's need for someone to go through things what they they know or or how how do you see the modern technology yeah well i totally agree like everything that you need to start a podcast or a vlog or a blog is in your pocket in the form of you know a smartphone it's it's really easy you don't need like you said a lot of equipment um i haven't got a tiktok account yet but i spend a lot of time looking at tiktoks and you see the kind of content that's being produced that's getting lots of views getting well shared it's not high-tech content it's not content that's shot with expensive or lots of gear it's content that's often shot on on phones um, you know audio direct from the um, device microphone it's not a special audio so I, and i agree with you um, in, in australia anyway and i think it's the case internationally 
um, consumers want transparency. Like, how does my tax money get spent? How does my tax money get spent on research? And at the very least, as a, as an academic, if you start a, a vlog providing some behind the scenes, like here's how I write a grant, here's how much time I spent putting together a, a document that is trying to get a small amount of money that then I'm going to have to justify why or how I spent the money. Like that would be really eye-opening to a lot of people and then probably not aware that, you know, if not tens, hundreds of hours goes into putting together a grant application that might only be worth a few hundred thousand dollars over three years. And if you said to someone in, in Australia anyway, live off, you know, $200,000 over three or four years, a lot of people would, find that um, not necessarily difficult to do, but they would think, oh, I thought scientists earned heaps of money when that's, you know, that's not the case. Um, so getting that kind of information out there would be good um, and, and just as easy uh, straight off your smartphone. I've seen people run crowdfunding campaigns directly off their smartphone. You know, everything's edited there. So there's no need to buy expensive equipment or additional equipment either. And and I think when you said transparency for scientific process, I think that's really something we we need at the moment. People people are seeing, for example, the COVID graph and the hospitalization, and they make like they have no background and they make like assumptions. We don't need to worry about it. And then when you actually somebody who's doing, for example, epidemiology would actually really show the daily work that how much they collect numbers, how many ways they analyze this peer review and everything. But most of people have absolutely no idea. And I, I think us scientists should be communicate in an entertaining way that people would actually see it and understand that, oh, they actually really put time on this. It's, it, it is very, very solid how they do it. But I think we are, we are missing that, that most of the population don't understand it. And like you said, it needs to be accessible. Like the history of the scientific journal was about making research accessible to everyone. Like that is literally how the scientific journals started. But now if you grabbed, if, if I grabbed a scientific journal from your discipline or you grabbed one from my discipline, we both couldn't understand it, let alone someone who has had zero training or education in the fields that we have. So I'm not sure that the scientific journal now meets the criteria of making it accessible. It, it it just publishes it. What makes it accessible now, in my mind, would be putting it out on social media in a form that can be shared and reshared um, by anyone who wants to. And and if we move to our points of of writing papers and and the common problems and how to overcome. So if we start with the scientific papers, what have been the common problems you have have seen in your work? Mostly people don't fully understand what the story that they're trying to tell with the research paper. So particularly, I work a lot with, like you said at the start, early career researchers and PhD students. And in Australia, there's a trend towards publishing uh, papers and that can, making up your thesis. I think that's pretty common across Europe. Um, and so obviously as a student, you want to publish. Um, and generally speaking, you've got an idea that you want to publish, but not really sure what. So getting concrete about your idea is, a, is one of the problems that students face uh, and then um, documenting that. A book that I use a lot um, 
to help students write their first paper in particular. It's called um, Writing Your Journal Article in 12 Weeks. It's by a lady who is based in the US. Her name is Wendy Belcher. And that book goes through step-by-step writing your first article, which I think is really useful. Um, There are sections in there about how to come up with your first idea. Um, And so there's a lot of brainstorming activities that people can use um, if you don't have an idea. But generally speaking, from your PhD, it's meant to be new knowledge. So if you've got research questions that already form your PhD, they can, how do you answer that question or how do you make progress towards answering that question? That would be potentially the topic of your research paper. The next problem with paper writing that I see is people don't devote enough time to it. So as an academic, I would say most of the time you need to be spending thinking or writing and sometimes collecting data as well. Um, But often the writing bit comes after hours. So you'll be collecting data most of the day and then in the night you're busy writing and maybe that's necessary. Maybe that's what you need to do. But I think for the most part, we should be incorporating writing into our daily activity. So PhD students are just not thinking about writing and going back to the riding bike example, if you want to learn to ride a bike, I don't know, up a hill or down a hill or on a ramp or in a half pipe, at least you've got to learn to ride a bike first before you can do all of those things. And if grant writing and journal article writing are the equivalents of riding in a half pipe or up and down a hill, then you've got to do the writing every day to get better at than writing grants. Um, so writing regularly is a massive problem that I see. And so again, like not that again, I love social media. So I think you should be you know, practicing your writing by doing short form posts on social media. That could be as simple as Twitter, um, which I think is where you found me. It could be longer form posts that might happen on LinkedIn or on um, Instagram. But all of that is writing. Um, and going back to the research, we know that people who focus on quantity do much better at improving their quality than people who focus on quality. So I'm not sure if, so basically writing lots of words will improve your writing more than trying to write the best words. So practicing writing is another common mistake I see, not allowing enough time for the practicing writing. And then the final thing that I see in terms of writing papers is people don't take the final step in the submission bit. They want to make their article perfect, which is fair enough. They're worried about rejection. They're worried about negative feedback, but ultimately you can't get published if you don't submit. And so having a deadline for when you submit is essential. And having a, um, being okay with the idea that you're sending something off that someone might correct is essential as well. And I encourage all of the people that I coach to send something knowing that it could be improved because in some respects that gives the reviewer something to do. Oh, this could be improved because they all want to have their input. Um, Accepting something outright is highly unusual. So why not make something that you know that they're going to want to improve? That doesn't mean to send something in that's sloppy, but it does mean, all right, I'm going to be happy with 80% done because the reviewer is going to tell me the next 20% that I need to get done. And it doesn't matter if I give them what I give them, they're always going to have an additional thing that they want me to do. And cool, I'll give them that opportunity then. This podcast is sponsored by Fibian, a research device that has been shown to be valid in tracking sitting, standing, 
physical activity and energy expenditure. Furthermore, Fibian has been shown to be valid categorizing physical activity into light, moderate, and vigorous intensity. In addition to scientific accuracy, Fibian provides automatically produced and easy-to-understand reports for research participants. Get scientific validation and learn more about Fibian at fibian.com research. Fibian. From researchers to researchers. Mm. Yeah, I, I think really good point. So, so basically, just start doing, start writing. You will learn it. Accept, accept uh, that it's not perfect. Kind of uh, admit uncertainty and just just keep going on. Would be your points to learn to write. Correct. Correct. Definitely have a go. And the, you know, and the same thing that works for your PhD thesis as well. So those tips of writing regularly. So if you can get into a writing habit of writing every day for 15 minutes, that'll be better than any writing course you do. That'll be better than any binge workshop that you'll do. If you write every day for 15 minutes, you'll have a really good thesis. Um, and particularly if you start focusing on scientific writing at some point in that process too. And and basically, you said that you should write regularly. How do you put it in your busy schedule? Like many many times, especially in quantitative uh, studies, you you need to spend a lot of time collecting the data, analyzing it, and and doing other tasks. How how do you how do you manage that? Uh, I like to. So this is a bit of a productivity thing as well. I like to um, write down at, at the top of a page today will be successful if, and then I'll put three things underneath that. And so for me, writing would be one of those things, or I would recommend to an academic that writing needs to be one of those things. And then there might be two other things, and that might be collecting my data and it might be analyzing my data. So in any one day, there's only three things that you need to get done. And if a new thing comes onto your desk, so for example, if I get an email from someone that says, hey, Richard, um, I need you to prepare some notes for a grant. So then I'll have to take one of my other things off so that I can get that thing done. So that still limits me to three things in a day, but I'm making a conscious decision about what those three things are that I need to get done. Uh, the next thing that I would encourage people to do is put it into your diary. So like you said, academics are busy. Um, you're probably getting lots of meetings. I listen to and read um, a bit from Cal Newport. He's an academic in the US, talks a lot about um, scheduling and productivity, um, particularly with an academic focus, but not just academia. Um, and one of his tips, and I really like this one, is if I get a meeting request from anyone. Um, I accept the meeting to the best of my ability like we normally would do, but then I also go ahead and block out an additional time equivalent to that meeting length that is just for me. So that means that I can never get a calendar that is full of just meetings because every time I get a meeting, I add in time that is equivalent, that is not a meeting, that is about me. So that can help protect some of your time. And um, another guy that I work with um, and listen to, his name's Dermot Crowley. He wrote this book called Smart Work. And 
basically he says integrate everything into one calendar system. So most of the time we only book meetings in our calendar. Um, and he's basically a big proponent of sh scheduling work into our calendar. So if we talk about how can I make sure that I get some writing done each week or each day, um, there would be in, you know, in my calendar, there's a slot every day for writing. And that slot might be 15 minutes today because that's all I could do. But tomorrow it might be an hour. Um, another day it might be several hours. But that slot exists in my calendar. So when it comes time to sit down and I have to write a blog every week or no, I don't have to. I set myself a goal of writing a blog every week. Um, oh, there's time to do that. I don't have to think, oh, how am I going to fit this into my week? It's already scheduled in my diary. Yeah, I think those are really good points. I, I really like, I use Google Calendar, so it's really easy to take times. And I try to also schedule like, when do I go for a run? I, I like to go a couple of times, like, early early morning or, or not early morning in the in the morning before noon some days so I actually schedule it and and also I, I really like I don't want like to sit next to a computer the whole day so usually for the afternoon I'm scheduling like a, a call with my colleague that I can go walk outside so I try to always put that so that kind of helps me I get my work done at the same time and I get the walk and it makes my days days much nicer and also, I think it's very useful. I, I just integrated this kind of uh, calendar software that people can book times to meet me, uh, and I don't need to. I need. I don't need to send the emails. And it actually was surprisingly easy. I, I didn't know it. It took like maybe five minutes, and I had the system up. And it's really good because now I can kind of force the meetings to the times that. I, I want to have the meetings so because there's there's a lot of days we don't need to send emails back and forth so I, I think that also provides me more time but also provides much more control to my my calendar yeah yeah I, I, I so again Cal Newport talks about the different ways of managing your time so one of them is the first one I mentioned if you get booked for an hour, book a corresponding hour for yourself. What I do for myself is I kind of do what you do. So I've got a scheduling tool that I can send a link to people and say, hey, here's my full availability. Go ahead and book. Now, that doesn't mean they've got open access to my calendar, but what it does mean is I can make myself unavailable at particular days and times or only available at particular days and times. So, you know, only nine to five, Monday to Friday. And that's kind of how we worked out this time as well to, to record the podcast today. We did that sort of back and forth a little bit. Uh, but then you've got your calendar system. I've got one of those as well. And I think they're really good. I'm, what one do you use? Do you, um, do you know the name of I, it? I, I use two Calendly, T-U calendar or something. I there's there's a place you get it like a lifetime deal for like forty nine bucks, okay. which is good. Yeah. Uh, it's appsumo.com. I don't know if it's still up there, but I if it's still there, I recommend people people get it. Yeah. I think others are like 10, 10 euros a month or something. Yeah, yeah. I've used Calendly before. I've got a my CRM customer relationship management tool is HubSpot. I think for the free version you can do that as well. Um, and the paid version, you can add all sorts of functionality, like add 
multiple different kinds of links so people can get a different link depending on what it is you want them to see, um, the, the availability, the notice period, all that kind of stuff. But that's a really good way of limiting access. Um, and what I so if you know again you thinking about the university sector in Australia lots of people's calendars are open to other people in their workplace so you can see busy times and free times and I just tell people look if you don't want to have meetings on Thursdays and Fridays just automatically fill those in and make a recurring meeting with yourself so that no one can ever book a meeting on a Thursday or a Friday or do what you do and say okay I want to go for a run in the morning so I'll put that in my calendar and i but I only want to have my meetings in the afternoon. So then just schedule with yourself a bunch of meetings that happen in the morning every day so that all people can see is your afternoon availability and that's when they'll be able to book. Um, and finally, say say no. So one of the – it's really interesting when I'm coaching people about giving themselves more time, I challenge them to uh, do you – let's go through your diary and work out could you have said no to any of the meetings that you've had in the past six weeks? And it, invariably they're like, oh, yeah, could have said no there, there, there. And I'm like, cool. So let practice saying no, say no to the meeting, push back, you know, make some go some rules. If it doesn't have an agenda, I don't attend. If it's if it's an hour long, but I really want it to be half an hour, I don't attend. Or I write back and say I can only attend for 30 minutes. Um, if if it doesn't need to happen at that day and that time, I push back and say no. So working out ways of saying no is important. Um, and Cal Newport reckons, and I tend to agree with this, that we generally say no to meetings once we've reached about 100% full, which means that we probably end up doing about one point or 120% worth of meetings than we really should. And he said, if you get a better understanding of how busy you are and how much time you need to do work, then you're better able and more confident to say no. You'll say no to meetings when you're at 80% full rather than when you're at 100% full. So I think that's useful as well, having a good justification for saying no so that if you're worried, people will... Um, ask you why you've got a good answer yeah I, I fully agree with those points and and I think if listeners want to learn more there's a lot of this kind of productivity tips and coaching for example in YouTube I've been watching one uh, guy from UK he's Ali Abdal who has like uh, who's who's been in Cambridge studying uh, medicine and then explains how he did well in the exams and then he has been working as a doctor and and is putting out, out a lot of content, very, very high quality. So maybe maybe checking that out. And if we go back to the writing process, like if you, for example, start doing a PhD and you haven't written any scientific papers, it might be a, a big task. You don't feel that you have the competence to actually write that kind of text. And basically no one has scientific text is is a certain kind of text. We don't learn it in school. It's it's a specific way of writing. How do you how do you go into that? How do you start writing when you don't really have the skills to do that? Mm. Uh, so the first thing is to start. So just write. The second thing is to read the kind of article or um, journal or book that you want to write, read that kind of content. So let's say you want to write uh, a nature paper, 
go and read a bunch of nature papers to see how they put together the words, how they put together the research, um, the kinds of um, data collection processes that they're using. All of those things um, might be useful uh, ways of starting the scientific writing process. Um, the other thing to do is read and then note what you like about the way that things are structured or note what you like about the way things are put together. So um, you know, does this make sense to you? Is this a good way of phrasing something? Is this a bad way of phrasing something? Um, if you're going to write a grant, you can do the same process. So one, start writing. Two, go and read. So go to your, I think, I presume most European universities have research offices. Um, go there and say, can I read some of the recent grant submissions? Uh, that'll be a great way of learning how to write grants and learning what you'd like to read um, and learning what is accessible to you as a, as a non-scientific writer at, at that stage at the start of your PhD. Yeah, I, I fully agree. And And reading other papers and then kind of, I don't say that you start to copy directly something, but you find a paper which is close to you and you look the logic, for example, introduction that first they introduce the cost of this problem, then how it affects the society and then how did they study it. So you just kind of take that blueprint and you start writing a sentence. Maybe it's bad in the beginning, but it gets improved. But I think many people, they procrastinate. They don't just you know, start writing the bad sentences and then modify them. And at the, at some point, they will be good sentences, in my opinion. What do you think? Yeah, totally agree. Um, like using the bike, riding a bicycle analogy, it's the same thing. You know, you don't expect to get on the bicycle for the first time and be the next Cadell Evans or, you know, whatever. You've, you've got to learn to balance and then go fast and then go faster and then ride with less equipment or ride with certain kinds of equipment. It's the same thing with writing. You, I don't know why we expect to write perfect sentences from the start. Uh, yeah, it's, it's just unrealistic. And reading, I, on my view is reading regularly, anything, not just science, will help improve your writing. It'll increase your vocabulary. It'll increase your knowledge of the world. It'll increase um, the the uh, range of sentences and phrases that you have at your disposal to describe something. Like even if you're reading fantasy novels but writing scientific work, there'll be elements that you can track across and you won't do it consciously. You might do it subconsciously, but it'll definitely improve your your writing. Mm, yeah, good good points. And, and then if we move from scientific papers to writing uh, your thesis, what what is different writing a scientific paper and writing a thesis and what what are the common problems yeah so i think firstly if you're writing a thesis by publication then a thesis and a paper are very similar but if you're writing a thesis uh, that is not by publication the main difference is that in my view and particularly again in a, thinking about the australian context where i've helped most people uh the data that you have in your thesis only needs to be new. It doesn't need to be publishable, whereas obviously a paper needs to be publishable. And, and there's two different things there. I think lots of people um, recently, particularly as it relates to COVID and the clinical trials, have spoken about you know journals of negative results or journals of research that didn't work. 
Um, and a PhD can essentially be that. I tried this and it didn't work. I tried that and it didn't work. That's still new knowledge. It might not be interesting to a publisher, but it is relevant potentially to your PhD. So know, know that new information is what your PhD needs to be. Um, and then after that, the way I think about it is the first step is to describe the, um, the field and let the reader know, the, ultimately the assessor, know that you know the context of your whole field. And the next step is to say, I knew all that context. Now here's some new information that I can add to that context. And then the conclusion or discussion part of your thesis is now with what I learned from the experiments that I conducted and what I learned from the previous literature, here's how I've moved knowledge forward. Here's the new information and how it fits in context. So that's what I think um, writing a PhD is about. And if you don't know what it, how a PhD should read, uh, ask your supervisor to share with you some PhDs that have been written by recent graduates from their group. Uh, if, they, if you're their first student, ask to read their thesis, your supervisor's thesis, because that's probably the kind of thesis they're going to expect from you. Um, and don't expect to read it cover to cover. I totally acknowledge my thesis has not been read by anyone except for me and my um, assessors. I don't think anyone else has read it through cover to cover. Um, but read through different bits and get a feel for what it is that they're, how they're expressing things. Um, Use your other, if you're in a research group with a lot of people, whether that be postdocs or other research students, uh, get their advice, like write something. It doesn't have to be long, one page, and ask them to have a read of it. Um, tell them to put ticks where they liked what you wrote or they could understand what you wrote and put crosses next to stuff that they didn't like or couldn't understand and that'll be really good feedback it's most likely that if they've provided that kind of feedback on one page that the other pages that you've written that they haven't provided feedback on break the same rules or make the same mistakes or uh do the, do the, have the same structure that's positive thanks for joining us this week on physical activity research through podcast if you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show, it would be great help for us we have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes so be sure to tune in thank you all for your support and have a great day